This is Inspination. Hello, good evening and good uh, morning, I think, in Mexico. Um, my name is Sarek Montes, and today I am with a special guest, uh, Brittany Arthur. Um, Brittany is an Australian uh, living in Japan since 2005, I believe, that studied a double degree in international business and Japanese with extensive experience in business development and design thinking activities. And currently co-founder and director of Design Thinking Japan, which is based in Tokyo. Um, and also a bis the host of Business Karaoke podcast in English and recently also in Japanese, which, as I was saying, uh, it's uh, I'm amazed by your level of Japanese being uh, a foreigner. I've, I, I think I've never seen anything like that, to be honest. <laughs> I, I know a lot of expats in 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 Japan. Before um, before uh, you explain to us a little bit more about you, I would like to to read uh, a little bit of the bio of the same thing in Japan as I found mm -hmm. it on LinkedIn because I think it's really interesting. So it says innovation doesn't occur by chance; mm -hmm. it's the result of a search to discover new connections between existing concepts. Mm -hmm. Design thinking is a successful method to help leaders and employees tap into their creative potential through empathy and human-centered problem solving. Mm -hmm. I think this was great. I'm not sure what, I'm still not sure what design thinking is 100%, but you're going to explain mm -hmm. to, to us uh, today. But I, th this is eye-catching for me. Like I was like, oh, this is interesting. So... So yeah, go ahead. Tell us a little more about this. Thank you so much for for having me. I'm really excited uh, to be here with you. Um, yeah, as Tarek said, good morning, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you are in the world, whenever you're listening to us. My name is Brittany, and I'm the co-founder of Design Thinking Japan. Uh, what we do at Design Thinking Japan is what we support our clients, their innovation, their innovation wishes, or their innovation um, desires really to come to come true so there's all different kinds of innovation there's disruptive innovation which is when a client says we want to build something new we want to do something new or then there's you know incremental innovation which is basically when someone says hey what we want to do is basically look at what we already do and we want to do it better so we do all these we that's kind of like our lens um, the other thing is, is that we deeply believe that innovation doesn't exist in a vacuum, that, in that innovation exists uh, within an open innovation ecosystem, which is why that we're deeply committed to leading an innovation conversation or a modern, also a modern conversation around innovation in Japan, which is why we have not only um, the Business Karaoke podcast, but also we also have a design thinking meetup called the Toyoko Design Thinking Network. So... That for me is a, is a little bit kind of the, the umbrella of what we do, um, that we really just work together with our clients to make, to help their innovation aspirations come true. Uh, and I think one thing that's uh, that to keep in mind when you are working in, in, in innovation 
is that it's really about that empathy, that concept of empathy. And what that means is rather than you coming and, and, and telling a client kind of what to do, it's really important to, to start with where they're at, you know, and help them build their innovation muscle, help them build their creative confidence, you know, to get them to a point that maybe they can, you know, grow their business or, you know, be a disruptor in their market, whatever that might be. So keeping that in mind, that, or maybe to go back to your question of what is design thinking in general, it's a process. It's, it's not only a process, but it's also, uh, it's a mindset as well. So the mindset is that kind of creativity, that empathy, that idea of iteration, that idea that we fail forward, that we want to learn fast. But in terms of the process, for me, one of the easiest ways to kind of um, to, to make an analogy around design thinking is that if we were to go anywhere, we would often use a map. So if we said, okay, Tarek, you and I are going to go from point A to point B, it would be not only more common, but it would be the, the better, more intelligent thing to do to use a map. However, when it comes to humans and when it comes to conversation, often we begin a journey without a map and that makes no sense. So what we do is that we use design thinking to kind of be that map in the background because design thinking really is that step-by-step process. So rather than just kind of hoping that you end up where you want to be, uh, design thinking is more of a process that you can almost rely uh, on you getting to where you want to be. Wow. This is, this is really like a breakthrough uh, concept for me, <laughs> especially because, and this is something we've discussed uh, in the past, um, so creativity is mm-hmm. seen sometimes as an innate skill or skill mm-hmm. related to the culture. Mm-hmm. But what I think you're saying is that you can actually define the steps, the mm-hmm. process on how to be creative or how to build mm-hmm. creativity out of the blue. And, and I think this is, uh, this is a great, uh, this is great news for, for Japanese work environment where, it's many times built on processes mm-hmm. and, and, and this could really help people. So how, how have you find that uh, you, you could help people or businesses in Japan with this step-by-step or, or map process for creativity? Mm-hmm. I'm glad that you, we so early got, uh, got onto the fact that it's about helping people, right? Cause that's really what it is. Um, as much as that my background is in, uh, is in business. The reason why I became so obsessed with business in the, in the first place uh, is really because I'm obsessed with people. You know, I really want to see people to, to grow. I really want to see people succeed in what they want to succeed in, you know? Um, so when it comes to design thinking and you mentioned that creativity being, being an innate skill, the thing that I'm most excited about with the design thinking, not only mindset, but also process people is that when the when there's a clear process, when there's a clear kind of recipe, then more people tend to get involved. And the reason why we need more people involved is because we have more complex problems than ever. We have more need than ever. Um, And on top of that is that we need to approach these kinds of problems that we have in the world from a different perspective. We need to look at, for example, things like a food shortage. We need to look at things like climate change or the coronavirus. We need to look at these from a different different perspectives so that we might be able to come up with something new. And so the reason that I'm so excited about design thinking as as a process is because it's built on the idea that we work better together, right? So it's this idea of 
multidisciplinary teams. So rather than we have, we're having a team of five engineers, we have one engineer, we have one finance person, we have one tech person, we have one HR person, we have one marketing person. The reason why we want to approach things in a multidisciplinary manner is because we get to a more robust solution quicker. So rather than, and you know, engineers having a conversation exclusively and then passing the idea onto marketing and then marketing having a conversation exclusively and passing it onto the customer. And then, you know, there's, there's a lot of insights that get lost. There's a lot of ideas, there's a lot, probably even, um, even, even improvements get lost that, you know, what the engineers created, or for example, what the market is, you know, might, what kind of stories they might write. The idea is if we do it together from the beginning, that the solution will be more robust in the end. And this is really what we're going for. We're going, we're going for how do we solve these big kind of problems, right? But at the same time, um, as much as, you know, we, we have the potential to solve these kind of global issues of, uh, you know, secure, security, maybe be food security, be it national security, be it health security, whatever it is, but we also have the opportunity to, on our company level, to just get people involved, right? So it's, that's what it's really about. There are so many people, like if we ask ourselves, who is showing up and doing their best and giving their best, right, at, at work? Often the reason that they're not doing their best or giving their best is because not because they don't want to, it's because the environment doesn't fit. So if we have an environment where we say every single person's opinion here matters because we want to approach this from so many different ways that we want to make sure that we have a complete 360 view and that there's no part or that there's no area or no perspective that we haven't covered, um, then that's what, that's what we want to do. And that's, you know, we see everything from, there's even biases in things like, you know, AI and technology. We want to make sure that if we're building a product or a service, we want to make sure that we're covering it from different social biases so that we, you know, check in with different user groups, you know, different, different nationalities, different races, different, people in general, you know, and then we also want to check in and make sure, you know, things like, oh, are are we providing this service not only for people in Tokyo, but are we providing this service for also people in Aomori? Because we're not just making people's life better in Tokyo, we're making sure that everyone has the same access to a better life. Yeah, wow. That's great. It sounds to me a little bit like the ideal uh, structure, the ideal Mm -hmm. uh, work culture. However, in real life, uh, mm-hmm. you know, in companies that might not be so good at this, how would you help them? How would mm-hmm. you start applying? What are the steps you usually follow to start applying these concepts? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. One, the, the first thing that, that we need to do when we are working with a design thinking model is once you kind of got that mindset ready, which is that empathetic, user-centric, it's okay, uh, you know, to go back and 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 test and learn and iterate mindset. Once we've got that done, uh, the next step is 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 to really understand that what we need to do is map multiple futures, right? And the reason that we need to map multiple futures is because there's I don't think there's ever been a better example than, or there's been no better example when I've been alive than the. 2020 um, that has been that has kind of encouraged people to see that a one linear growth platform or one linear growth projection is not going to be as um, secure it's not going to be as uh, 
as confident or it's not going to, it might not happen like, like we thought it would be. So what we want to do is that we want to move to this kind of multiple future mapping. And this is really great with design thinking because we begin with the user in mind, we gather data, we recognize patterns, and then we can develop multiple solutions. So what we want to do is use, use this uncertainty in the world to our advantage and then create multiple solutions. So if you're a company, the first thing that I would do to encourage you in, in getting into this kind of more agile, user-centric approach to operation would be to map multiple futures. And so that what you want to do is once you have that kind of, you know, multiple futures that, that might either, you know, but of course they're all going to be, they all have to be in line with your business strategy. So once they're all in line with your business strategy, you know, but then we have different ways to approach it. And so that's a really great thing because then if the market changes or if your business changes or if the environment changes, whatever changes, then we've already gone through this process of, you know, mapping multiple futures and that we can use, for example, different solutions that we've already developed, you know, that we can simply then go, go ahead and implement them. So um, you said map multiple futures based on mm-hmm. my business strategy. So let's say I'm a business owner and mm-hmm. my business strategy changes over time because circumstances, mm-hmm. circumstances change. Mm-hmm. So would that impact this initial mapping of the multiple futures? It's like a retrofitting process that is continuously mm-hmm. updating. Yeah, that's that, yeah, that's certainly one way to think about it. The, what we want to do with design thinking is that we want to use existing assets in different ways, right? So it's about repurposing existing assets. So lots of people kind of begin with, okay, now, for example, like the hype is blockchain or AI or whatever it is, and they'll go to a company that's, you know, existed for 50 years or 100 years and say, forget, forget everything you've done. Like imagine you and I, you know, we go to Toyota and we say, forget cars, you know, they, it's, there's, it's a dying business, Forget it, start with blockchain. Well, that's not really what we want to do, right? Because imagine how much, how many assets Toyota has through their cars. So not only do they have materials, but they also have data, right? So what kind of data, what kind of relationships, uh, you know, what kind of assets exist within the company and then how can we repurpose them? So the idea is that you kind of get into this constant mindset or this constant process of how can we use our existing our existing assets in a new way to unlock business value so this way when you kind of approach it from this mindset you don't have to kind of wake up one day and say oh okay uh, do we have to change our business model because i'm very sure that over time your business will take many transformations the idea is that we we develop this mindset of we're constantly looking to repurpose our assets in new ways, right? So getting back to the very beginning, you know, when you talked a little bit about what we do at Design Thinking Japan, it's about it's about connecting those seemingly unrelated topics in a new way. And that's something that Design Thinking helps us to do is it helps us take the existing assets that we have in the market and also that we have in our business, repurpose them so that we unlock new business value, not only for, for us as a business, but also you know, for the market as well. It sounds like, uh, sounds to me that giving more flexibility to companies in order mm-hmm. to approach future challenges. And that's, this, is, this sounds great. And again, how, how, how difficult or easy mm-hmm. you're finding in your experience 
to implement these ideas in the Japanese uh, business environment. I think that's a great a great uh, point that it's about flexibility. That's really what it's about. It's really about giving companies the resources or giving them the tools that they need to make decisions for themselves, right? At at a time that it suits them. Um, coming back to your question about the the Japanese market, uh, the Japanese market has is is forever an exi- an interesting market. It's an interesting place to do business. Yeah. We've seen companies. For example, that you know, Honda didn't begin, you know, with with motorcycles and and, and cars, and neither did Toyota, and most certainly neither did Mitsubishi. You know, we see these companies that began, you know, in a different world and then kind of adjusted. So, actually, we've seen many cases that Japanese companies, even for example, like a, a car, like a current case, if we want to speak about it, you know, from a modern lens. Um, let's look at. Uh, Fujitsu, Fujitsu or Fuji, right? Fuji film. Right. We saw, for example, like in, in the eighties or in the nineties, that was like there was no other film. That was it, mm. right? And then mm. you know when it came to when also when it came to cameras, and then boom, you know, with the minute that you didn't recognize that your phone could be a camera, you kind of you know lost the game. However, Fujitsu kind of you know retreated, took some years, rethought you know, re- recalibrated, and now they've come back stronger than ever. And what have they done? They repurposed their existing assets in data and imaging. And what do they do now? They're the leaders in, you know, in MRI and other you know, medical imagery. So this is, this is kind of the idea of what we're talking about. It's about the idea of giving them flexibility, like you mentioned, um, and then moving. So we've seen that it's possible in Japan, right? We've seen that it's possible. However, what we've also seen is that it's actually not that common, though. Right. We have these kind of poster children of Japanese business. But if we talk about it at kind of like a, like a common level, we don't see it much. So what is it that we need to change or what is it that we need to tweak in order for us to see it? And I think um, there's so much about design thinking that really is, is some Japanese culture. There's this idea of user centricity, you know, that, you know, that you want to, you know, that the customer is God, you're thinking them uh you know japanese services are are um you know v- very mature in terms of the kind of experience that they want to give people right but at the same time we do see that there are challenges like if you even go to something as simple as a restaurant and you want to change your order you want to do something as simple as instead of rice i'd like bread for example this is absolutely would blow the waitresses or waiter's mind and they would have to go to their manager and then you'd have to wait 10 minutes for this to be able to, you know. So if we yeah. see this at kind of like a very common, like common environment, imagine what we see at business, right? So what we want to see, you know, in Japanese businesses is that we want to use this kind of energy that they have, that they want to serve their clients, that they want to exist beyond the next quarter, because this is different compared to, you know, Western businesses where it's always about, you know, shareholder value and, you know, producing for the next quarter. But we see in Japan that they do have the liberties, they do have the luxury to to stop. And for example, like the case with Fujitsu, we were just talking about, you know, we, we saw that Fujitsu, you know, did not reach the kind of returns that maybe their shareholders were expecting, you know, for a couple of years, because they wanted, they wanted to do was was redesign and reinvent themselves right so how a japanese company would then do this on like a on a more common level is that it really begins with that role modeling of behavior at the at the top so it really does begin with that kind of leadership thought leadership 
that you say, we are now a learning organization, right? Because the idea that you map multiple futures, right, inherently means that you're going to have to make a bet, right? It's which one are we going to bet on? And in order for you to bet, right, what you do is that you take all the environment that you'd like the environmental factors uh, into account, and then you make your best decision, right? It's not about, you know, closing your eyes and kind of like Vegas style, you know, throwing two dices. It's about, we want to take a, we want to take a really, you know, sensible approach to this. We want to look at it from the user side. We want to see, is this product or service desirable to users? We want to look at the business viability. We want to see, is there a strong business model behind this? Can, is this a sustainable business model? And then we want to also look at the feasibility. Do we have the technology available to us in order to deliver this product or services to our people? And so once we kind of do that, what we do need to do is have this, have this definitely management that say, yes, we are allowed to try. Yes, we can try different things. Yes, challenge the status quo. And the difference between Japanese companies that have been able to move quickly and not has really been that, that top management um, in, in taking a strong stance. Of course, there's that total principle that everyone can have an idea, you know, and that's certainly true. But if business change. I think this is true. It's certainly true in Japan, but I also think it's probably also globally um, globally relevant that if we have this behavior, this learning, if we become a learning organization, if we have this, you know, this C-level saying, yes, we're okay to make your best bet. And if that bet doesn't work out, that's okay. In order to build this kind of culture within the organization, I think that's absolutely critical. And once we build that kind of learning culture, I think that's when we can really see businesses, um, you know, try different things and then, you know, maybe unlock value, hidden business value that they didn't know they had. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And when you mentioned learning organization and you mentioned that you have to bet and and basically you could fail. Mm-hmm. And I think in my simple mind, companies are either a product of the society, the people that work in the company, Mm -hmm. or at least related strongly Mm -hmm. because at the end of the day, it's just humans working together. So um, what I've noticed in the Japanese society is that failing is not as uh, nicely regarded as in the West, especially in countries like the US where uh, failing is almost like an Mm -hmm. honor badge uh, that that you show as experience. Mm -hmm. So how... How would you, from a cultural perspective, implement a mindset mm-hmm. of failing? It's okay to try and fail mm-hmm. in in a culture that that what we see in, when we talk about individuals is that failing or showing failure might be sometimes even a shame. Absolutely. I think. Uh, the first thing and perhaps one of the things that I found most uh, most effective is that we need to reframe failing, right? Reframe failing. Because even in Silicon Valley or in these kind of, you know, like Western startups, the idea that you just fail and that's it, that's not really what failing means. So when we go into a Japanese organization, we have to give them the context of what failing means. Failing means failing is okay, but learn from it, right? That's really what failing is. So when we're trying to introduce this um, 
almost um, you know, curious mindset in a Japanese organization, I would recommend that we reframe it from it's okay to fail, like if you say that in Japanese organization, they'll look at you like, are you kidding me? You know? So what we want to say is So we want to look at, we want you to learn fast. We want you to try different things and learn fast. So we move from that kind of um, you know, and I think this is a, this is perhaps something that's even maybe culturally or even linguistically relevant, is that when we are introducing concepts, be it concepts of innovation, be it concept like just new concepts in general, what we need to do is we need to speak in a way that means something to the person we're speaking to, right? So maybe for us, if we're speaking English, we know what fail fast means. We know what you know, um, you know, we know the kind of the, the context around it. However, you can't assume that a Japanese person knows that, you know, that has that same level of context or has that same level of reference. And so, you know, I, this kind of reminds me of a, of a, a friend of mine who's actually a, a graphic designer. He often, you know, he often talks about drawing um, is not for me to explain my idea. Drawing is for you to understand right? And I think this is true for language. That's a visual language. He was referencing visual language. But I think for us using, you know, you know, actual language, I think what, what, what we would then need to keep in mind is, what can I do to make not only my point, but how can I make this person understand better, right? And so I think one way to make do that is to reframe something that, as you mentioned, is scary, is is absolutely fear-driven in Japan, which is failing. Let's reframe that to, you know, a learning, like a learning, being curious, um, you know, so that it becomes, it doesn't become as, as scary for a Japanese person to adopt. Yeah, that sounds interesting. It probably sounds like the key uh, to get into, into Japanese culture and shift it. Uh, I guess it takes time. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, many things take time, uh, when you want to do a change in general, maybe sometimes even more in Japan. So how do you proceed uh, in a more tactical uh, approach uh, when you have to change this culture or improve this mindset in mm-hmm. a Japanese company? Mm-hmm. That's, that's a great point. One of my absolute first questions is how committed is this organization to changing? This is, this is the first, this is really the first point is, is there a commitment? Because for me, there's two organizations who don't change. One is we don't change and we don't care. Right. And the other one is we don't change because we don't know how. Right. And so if you are the second organization and you're not, and you haven't changed simply because you don't know how, um, but the commitment is there for me, it's about then entering into this with a long term uh, mindset. And what that means is, is that this person or this client is going to need different things from you at different phases. So the innovation journey or this change journey for this client is going to look very different in the first three months than it will in a year from now, than it will in two years from now. So the idea is to walk into this relationship with a, with a partnership mindset that, and also a growth mindset. So as you grow, I grow. As, you're, as you grow and as you learn about innovation and as you know, the organization becomes more comfortable with innovation or becomes more comfortable with change, then as will our services can also change, right? Because then they'll need something different from us. Maybe they'll need a more 
mature uh, facilitation, or maybe they'll need mature uh, professional education for their people, right? So it's about mm-hmm. walking in and seeing this company, not simply for the company, but for the people, looking at who's leading the change, asking yourselves how committed they are to the change. If they're committed, then walking into that relationship with a partnership mindset and knowing that as much as they're willing to change, you have to grow with them. So your products and services, maybe it's more convenient for you to sell a particular thing, but if that's not where they are, if they're not there yet, then what you need to do is is look where they are and then grow with them and iterate with them uh, in in their journey. So that that would probably be my, my number one thing is to certainly check how committed this organization is and then to walk in with this mindset of I'm here to be your partner and then I will grow with you throughout your innovation journey in according to your needs and, and how you need me to show up for you. This is awesome. And the question, how are uh, how are you committed to change? Like you could apply this to almost mm-hmm. any type of behavioral change mm-hmm. of improvement will in life. It could be, right. I don't know, get fit or I don't know, read a book. How yeah. are you committed to change? I like it. And then you mentioned some organizations might, might, you know, be in line of I'm not changing and I don't care. Mm-hmm. How, how, how is this possible? How an organization or a person that knows that is not changing, that is not adapting, that might, you know, go to the uh to to fail to failure mm-hmm. and not caring like, have you found these situations or mm-hmm. do, do you think this exists really uh yes i absolutely think it exists um but for every person that doesn't want to change i do think there is many more who do right so if we i don't my my kind of life motto is i don't spend too much time on people who don't put in the work to get where they want to go, right? So rather than kind of knocking on doors, trying to get the no to a yes, I just go with people who are already with yes, right? And then work with them. But for example, if we were to kind of just reflect just briefly on why someone wouldn't change, well, it's obvious. It's because the 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 imminent or consequences are not, won't be seen by this person. Often we see Japanese managers that are kind of like, we kind of see this often in the kind of the late 50s block of people. Mm-hmm. We see this in the late 50s block of people because either A, you spend, you know, you're just, you're looking down retirement. Uh, what do you do? Do you either just kind of like sail for five years and then kind of, you know, and then you can go into retirement and then you don't have to worry? Or do you use the last five years of, of the time that you're at this organization to implement a legacy that people will say, I'm so glad Tanaka-san did that for us because our life is easier now because of what that person had done for us. You know, and I think they're managers that don't see that even if they're not making a decision, even if they choose not to change, that they're simply passing the bat, right? They're simply passing the problem down the line. I think that's not only, um, I think that's not only t- completely irresponsible, 
right? It's completely irresponsible um, just because it's not your problem to pass it down the line. I think it's not only completely irresponsible. I also think as, as, a, as a human or, or as a leader, for me, it's, it's incomprehensible, you know, because for me, it's about every interaction that I have with someone, I want them to leave thinking that their life is better because, because of the interaction that we had. I, w- I would be devastated as a person that if the legacy that I had at a company was, you know, she had 10 years to change this and she didn't. And now look what she left, left us with. You know, that would just be terrible for me. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, and by the way, I think that not taking a decision is actually taking a decision. Of Absolutely. Not, not doing yeah. anything, right? I would say this type of people have no mid or long-term vision at all. And probably mm-hmm. with, with a bit of selfishness uh, in the recipe, um, I, you, you mentioned that you you prefer to focus on the companies that or organizations that see no change but want to change. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that working with these organizations and expanding this mindset would avoid having in the future having the kind of leaders that decide not to change anything while they should be? Mm, I think that's a great insight. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised, you know, because. Another reason, I guess, why people don't change is because that if, if they don't know how, it's, you know, it's scary. And often, for example, with these organizations that say, yes, we want to, but we don't have a map, um, they, you know, they, they look and they go, oh, gee, you know, how, how can we start? And so our, our job is to kind of get them starting as quickly as possible. And then I think what's even more effective than us leading the change for them is for us to kickstart the change for them, that kind of like initial kind of point me in the right direction. And then for them to then use their own people, their own insights, their own knowledge um, to then design their own change journey. Uh, I think that's that's really key because innovation for each company is, is going to look different. And I think that's a great thing because each company, you know, and, and as you and I know, uh, if we think about it from a Japanese context, Companies are not only companies, but they're cultures, you know, within. So, you know, Toyota has a different culture. Sony has a different culture. Mitsubishi has a different culture. Even Mitsubishi Motors versus Mitsubishi Bank, you know, they have different cultures as well. Um, So what we want to see is we want that each company uses their own assets or uses their own context to change because the more that this change comes from within is the the more that they're more likely to commit to it because you they see their self, they see themselves in it right because if I were to come and give you a perfect blueprint on how you how you were to change or how you, you can innovate in your organization if you were to look at that and and it's it's like looking into a mirror if you don't see yourself then you know this kind of this blueprint is just another piece of paper that you just you know put put on a pile and you just ignore but if you see yourself in this blueprint if you've been involved in the design process if you if in this innovation journey or in this innovation blueprint that we've built together that you see your own company's assets then you recognize ah this is not just as off the shelf you know innovation proposal this is something for me you know, and that's really what this is really that we really want to do is that we want to create that that connection, that personalization um, to to for the company so that they're, they're more likely to commit, you know, which gets back to get which really gets back to um, to your point, Derek. 
Yeah, so you mentioned see yourself involved, see your mm -hmm. company involved in the change. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, th I think that's key. And probably there is a bit of education to uh, provide to the leaders that don't care. Mm -hmm. I, I want to believe that they they do care, but maybe they're afraid, or as you mm -hmm. said, they don't know how to do it. And they just go ahead with this more simple solution, which is don't change anything. Mm -hmm. um, so, so let's say a company in Japan is interested in changing. They don't know how to do it. Mm -hmm. How would they approach to you, to your company or organizations like yours? Mm -hmm. Thanks. That's that's also a really a really great question. So when we when we look at change, um, I think another point um, which as as you were talking also kind of like was triggered in me is that often people don't change not because they don't want to it's because and and that i don't know how often comes from a lack of role modeling you know and what we've seen for example in the, in you know in the japanese economy in the 80s and the 90s is that the the japanese economy in the 80s and the 90s is not the japanese economy in 2020 right you know, it's, there's a decreasing population They, you know, we have to think, okay, how can we utilize or leverage highly skilled foreign work, which is something that they didn't need to do in the eighties. You know, Japan was a very self-sufficient domestic market. That's not the, so these managers are now looking at not only an international market that in my opinion, many are completely underprepared um, to enter, um, but also they're looking at a, that, is that's a domestic market that they were used to, right? So what we need to do is because that they've never had a role model, um, that they don't have a blueprint to then move forward. So to understand that maybe this kind of generation might be the role model or might be the blueprint for many generations, you know, probably for the next two or three generations, especially when it comes to, you know, having concerns about the environment, having concerns about, you know, immigration and, you know, utilizing foreign professionals. This is something that no one's ever had to worry about before. So this is kind of like something that we're really, as, as a community, really have to approach um, new, right? So I think that's that's one thing to keep in mind, and then in terms of how how to how to begin, right? Which was you know your question, how how to begin? Um, if when we think when we're thinking about innovation, the most important thing is to not just you know send drones out into the world with your brand on it, or to just start building you know like speech recognition for no reason. Really what we want to do is before we build it right, we want to build the right it, right? Which is why design thinking is broken up into kind of two phases. One is the problem and the second is the solution phase. And very often a Japanese company will come to us and say, can we and I'll say, no, well, you can, but it's not design thinking, you know, whatever it is that you do. Um, because is make sure that we understand the problem before we leverage or design a solution because it's not simply about you know as we said letting letting robots out into the world it's about making sure that the solutions and the resources that we're investing because every single minute that we're working towards innovation is an investment right it's an investment that maybe will pay off we're hoping that's our bet right at the end of the day that's our bet um, that this particular innovation will pay off. But any innovation work beforehand, before it's a business model, before it's a product, before it's a service, then so we have to be very 
purposeful and very careful with how we invest. So we want to make sure that when we're investing in this innovation, that it's the right innovation. We want to make we've got the right problem, the right person, and then we can then go ahead and then uh, create. So I think if you're if you're a company and you want to begin, I would absolutely recommend understanding what problem it is that you're solving. That would be my absolute first step. Uh, and then once we've kind of defined the problem, that's really the opportunity to go in to, as we said, repurpose those assets uh, and then to come up with a new way to solve this problem. So uh, I get to find the problem as the key uh, starting point. And uh, I've noticed that you have you put a lot of focus, especially through your podcast, which is the, the main source I had to know a little bit more about you and, and I think what, what you're interested in. So I think you have interesting people, that, foreigners that have somehow been involved in Japanese business environments mm-hmm. or vice versa. Sometimes mm-hmm. Japanese people that have been involved in foreign um, mm-hmm. environments. And uh, you mentioned that many companies or some companies are not prepared nowadays to uh, jump into the international market. So I think this is interesting. And as you said, define the problem. How would you define, let's say, the key problems that you have seen in companies to assess that they are not actually prepared to jump into the international uh, business environment? Mm-hmm. I think there's... If we're if we're looking at this from how might Japan be able to to, to collaborate or for, maybe that's even even then the answer, I think that Japan will look at itself as a vendor, right? We're going to sell this. We're going to or the opposite. They look at themselves as a consumer. We're going to buy this. However, the global market, and if we're really going to see change, and if we're really going to see, you know, even though you know Japan is such a funny economy, isn't it? You know, because we, you know, for It's for ever since I've been alive, I've been hearing people say the Japanese economy is stagnated. They're reducing Japanese economy, but it's been the, the you know the third largest largest economy for my entire life. Um, so you know, there's that. Um, but if we if we if we think about why I believe that the Japanese company or some Japanese companies are are not prepared is because they look at themselves like it's a one way street. We're either a vendor or we're a consumer, right? But what we want to do is we want to move. That, and we want to move towards more of a collaborative, open innovation approach. We want part of an ecosystem. Maybe you buy things and maybe you sell things. That's great. But I would love companies position themselves and then act it in a way that made them more of a collaborator rather than consumer or a seller, right? I think that will be the app. I think that's the change. And in order to be that collaborator that we were mentioning, I, you know, you need things like, Uh, understanding for the person, you know, I know there's, you know, massive issues when it comes to, for example, English, you know, being able to use English. However, this is a really good opportunity for some younger Japanese to stand up and then maybe they can then be the representative because we've seen that younger Japanese tend to have a better uh, English than, than older Japanese. Um, so I think there, there's, there's ways around it, um, but that would probably be my, my number one thing would be to go from how might Japan simply just be a consumer or a seller to how might they be a collaborator. And this is something that they do already incredibly well domestically, right? The domestic Japanese economy is 
literally B2B businesses selling and buying from each other. Like this is, this is all what it's about, about, you know, you'll have corporation A and then you'll have a, then they'll have, you know, a company under them and then there'll be a company under them. And then there's a company under them. You know, it's, it's just this complex, you know, network of stakeholders, uh, which, which exist actually quite together. So I think if they can take the approach that they have domestically, which is this long-term partnership collaboration approach. And if they then look at that, they apply that to, to an international setting, I think that they will see a, a difference. And it's, there's, there's incredible opportunity, particularly when it comes to Japan being such a hardware-driven uh, economy, you know, building actual, you know, they, build up, they do very well hardware. Um, however, when it comes to software, they don't do well, right? So what does that mean? Well, actually, that's a real opportunity. Maybe, you know, Japanese hard, but we've seen that there's, you know, it hasn't been as well. Um, you know, we've seen people that, you know, there was this exodus in China, and then people saying, oh, well, actually, quality isn't as good. Maybe we should put in, you know, the extra money for the Japanese quality. There's a lot of opportunity, particularly now, that people are rethinking their, um, their supply chain particularly after the coronavirus, you know, they're, you know, rethinking their supply chains, rethinking their, rethinking their, um, their partnerships and rethinking about the trust that there is in the market and then making decisions based on that. So I would love to see, you know, rather than recommending Japanese to go and, you know, learn English, I think that's a kind of a, I don't, I think it's a bandaid approach, to be honest. I don't think that's a really I think the real issue is that they think there's Japan and then there's the rest of the world. Rather than thinking of Japan is a part of the of our, our global ecosystem and that moving from the simple consumer model that we buy things, we sell things, to how might we be able to contribute, right? Because there's so much we contribute. It's not only about, you know, finance, for example, that, you know, Japanese, you know, large so companies have a lot of cash, right? They have a lot of cash, which they could then go and then use for, for example, foreign startup. There's a lot of opportunities to collaborate, but we're not only talking about, for example, really tangible things like, you know, start, you know, investment capital, but we're also looking at things. What about ideas? What about people? So to then collaborate and then share not only, you know, capital, like financial capital, but also, um, you know, intellectual capital, I think that's really going to be the way forward. And I think any manager that takes the of we're here to collaborate, we're here to be a partner, we're here to share not only our, you know, our, our resources, but also, you know, our people and our, our ideas, I think will be the manager of the future, regardless of their level of English. Yeah, so vendors last consumer versus collaborative um, business style. So you've explained uh, about collaborative business style, but I'd like to understand more. So let's set an example, a company that is selling some hardware. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know, uh, cars, for example. Uh, why right. not? And, um, and they have this mindset of a vendor. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they go sell cars uh, all over the world. Um, how, how would you uh, help them shift that mindset to a more collaboration uh, business mm-hmm. mindset? What would you advise them to do to mm-hmm. be more solid in the foreign markets? 
One, I think it goes back to um, one, which is to be able to recognize opportunities. And I think recognizing opportunities is the same as defining the problem, right? So we begin at the beginning and we say, you know, how might we either bring more value to the car or how might we become more than a car? How might we, how might we even redesign our business that the least important thing that we deliver to our clients might be the actual car itself? right? Imagine. So then we move from, for example, like a, like a hardware model to, you know, even we start thinking about mobility. When we start, when we, when we replace the word car for mobility, immediately our brain starts ticking. Okay. What does mobility mean? Well, mobility actually is then even before I get in the car and it's also after I get in the car, right? So, you know, things like that. And then you can invite, um, uh, startups that maybe have nothing to do with the automotive industry, but maybe they're either, you know, leaders in, in maps, right. In, in map mapping, because for example, like, as we all know, Google is, um, I, I, I want to say Google sucks in Japan, but I, I couldn't think of a better word than saying like Google sucks, in Japan. like Google maps, you, you know what I mean? Uh, because <laughs> yeah. you, you know, Japanese people don't use Google maps like foreign people do. So the data isn't as good. Right. So, yeah. but we need like all those tiny little streets and things like that. You know, you go down a street, you're like, this is not the street. What the, you know? So <laughs> yeah. it's, so that's what really what we, imagine you could invite someone like, like that. You could, for, for example, like invite like a, like a UX design agency, maybe you have whatever it is, you know, and you can start thinking like firstly define the problem or even define the opportunity that maybe you want to, you know, introduce, you know, different things or different um, offering uh, offerings in, into, into your sales cycle and then, and then invite them over or, and you know, this is something that we can even do even more easily now online is that we can collaborate. You don't have to, you don't have to travel. We have Google translate. So if you want to type an idea, just put it into Google translate really quickly. And then people can, you know, more or less understand what you're trying to say. Um, so I think this is a, and this goes for not only English to Japanese, but also Japanese to English or Spanish to Japanese or Japanese to Spanish, whatever it is. Um, and I think that's, that's kind of where it begins. I think it begins with that mindset of let's look at what we do, but also let's kind of take like a hero approach. How might we be able to be the hero of this story? What, what, let's zoom out. Let's make this bigger. Let's think about how we can, you know, take our cars and make this a part of, you know, how might we be able to improve people's lives and stuff. And then you go into something which is very, you know, not complicated anymore, which is to then identify who the global leader and identify them and then simply reach out. And I think this is really has, has never been as easy as it is today. Take a collaborative and develop something together because the more that you develop something together, then it, then we move away from that, what we were talking about, that vendor seller model. And then we move into this collaborative approach, you know, and I think that um, this is possible not only for these larger Japanese catered companies, but I also think this is possible for a small to medium um, enterprise in Japan. Yeah. How can I be the hero of this story? Another, another golden sentence I discovered <laughs> from what you said. I really like it. And I think it can be applied to so many other aspects in life. Uh, so we have the tools, like, mm -hmm. as you said, and you put it in a very easy way. Like We don't need super fancy um, you know, software suits or hardware, we have already the tools so we can do this. Mm -hmm. What do you think it's stopping uh, Japanese companies from feeling the heat and starting the change, look for the change, who can help them, especially in these times of pandemic? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. 
Um, I I honestly think there are more people that are that are wanting to change than there were even five years ago. I honestly think that the conversations that I'm hearing, um, I think there's a stronger push towards change now than than there has been. Um, however, I wouldn't be surprised that if we haven't necessarily seen let's call it the materialization of change in Japan as, as much as we have, for example, um, in, in the West when it comes to, you know, working online and, you know, I think things like that and opportunities, you know, co- co- uh, collaborating remotely. However, I wouldn't be surprised if what we, what happens, what we always, which is Japan is late, back strong, right? So for example, um, we often see that there are many countries that will kind of do this kind of let's build the ship as we're sailing, you know, kind of like the American cultures or, for example, Australia, which is where I'm from, is certainly the case as well, that they'll kind of begin strong and then it fades out, right? Yeah. However, Japan takes, you know, sometimes an eternity to begin, but once they begin, the commitment is very strong and they move very fast, right? So for me, you the, the the ideal situation would be a little bit in the middle, right? The the ideal situation would be how can we, you know, utilize this kind of fast start uh, culture of of the West, but then how might we be able to have that strong follow through? That that's obviously you know the kind of the ideal situation. But for example, in Japan, I wouldn't be surprised that, for example, if in two years from now or in three years from now, we Japan has implemented. The, the maybe the infrastructure or the systems required, um, you know, to, to work from home because that's a little bit the Japanese approach rather than just kind of everyone, you know, does whatever they want to do, which is exactly what we saw in the West. Okay, work from home. Work from home in the West and everyone just took their laptop and just sat at their kitchen table and worked, right? That's, that's really what it meant. However, I wouldn't be surprised that if in Japan in three years from now or in five years from now, we see that there's a complete, you know, support behind employees working from home because, you know, there is this Japanese mentality of if we're going to do something, we want to do it right. Um, so, yeah, I do I do certainly think that, you know, they're behind and there are some some managers that, that, that are not changing. But I, I have a feeling that there's a lot of seeds being planted now in this pandemic that we won't come to fruition or that we won't see probably uh, for another two to three years. And I wouldn't be surprised that if in the West we're still kind of having this, you know, completely disorganized approach to, to home office where, you know, because there's so much, there's so many questions. Who pays for who pays for your internet? Who pays for all the extra water that you're consuming? What about your electricity? You know, it's literally work from home in the U.S. Just means take your computer and just sit at your kitchen table and just work there. That's all. That's all it means. There's nothing more behind it. I wouldn't be surprised if you know in two to three years we see more of a more of an organized uh, approach um, implemented implemented by the Japanese. That's a very interesting point because I think that. Um, the, the time frame that things take to kick off in Japan has usually been regarded as a disadvantage rather than mm-hmm. um, uh, something good. And now you're just explaining why sometimes taking your time is good because it brings you to a more solid state where you can move through. But you're also saying that you know it, it's it's somewhere in the middle between just go mm-hmm. do it even though you don't know how to do it and being 
200% sure that you mm-hmm. you can do it exactly. to start doing it, right? So, exactly. yeah. Yeah, I wonder what, uh, in my mind, uh, mm-hmm. foreigners in Japan might have, um, might, might be a good opportunity for Japanese people and companies to uh, to bring this change because mm-hmm. it's uh, in my mind it's, it's it's like this mixture that you've you've uh, mm-hmm. uh, explained uh, so it's a little bit from what we're doing in the West but not forgetting the Japanese mindset so what do you think would be more specifically the added value of foreign professionals in mm-hmm. Japan so let's say I am and I am actually a professional aerospace engineer working in Japan in the management field and a big company like Mitsubishi. So how can I help my company to bring them to this to this point where mm-hmm. they change not so slow, but also not so fast? Mm-hmm. I think, you know, you, you, wear two, you wear two hats. One is that you're a foreigner, right? And the other one is that you're you, right? So, there, there, you know, there's that, there's that diversity as well. And I think using that is, is, is so essential to use the fact that firstly, who you are, the kind of diversity that you have, the experience that you have, the places that you've been, the things that you've seen, the things that you've learned, bring them to the table. Uh, I think that's absolutely, absolutely essential. And the second thing is that, that when you're that foreigner in Japan, often what you can do uh, is that you can push things through a, li- a little easier, you could you don't have you don't you're not you know uh held to the same i would call them rules as like the japanese so sometimes you can move you have a little bit more wiggle room a little bit more you know buffer that you can that you can do things um and i found as long as you use that in a positive way that you use that you know with good intentions you know i've seen that actually be really positive because at the end of the day your managers or your bosses or the leadership is looking for allies for change they're looking for allies. So what I think is is um, is maybe your role as as a foreigner is for you to certainly show up with firstly who you are because before you're a foreigner you you you, you know uh, show up with all of your different different assets that you have um, you know all the different experiences that you have. And then, you know, make it very, make it very clear uh, in your organization that, that your, that your leadership can, can count on you as an ally. And I think uh, when, and then you kind of get this, this kind of psych approach where the more that leadership see that the more allies that they have, the more likely they are to move. And the more likely that they are to move, the more likely they are to develop allies. You know, so we kind of see that um, kind of system that it feeds into each other. So I would encourage you as a as a foreign professional um, to understand that you do much more than just you simply being foreign. Um, but it's it's all of your experiences and you know everything that you've learned. Uh, and then also, there's such a funny thing about being from an island, you know, because I'm also from an island. Australia is a continent, but it's also an island mm-hmm. that they don't have the opportunity to have seen things. And often the reason why things are as they isn't because somebody sat down and said, this is absolutely the best way that we can do it. It's often because it just kind of developed like that and nobody has challenged it since. Speak up, learn the fact, you know, utilize the fact uh, or even leverage the fact that we've been kind of taught abroad to, to speak up, use that, you know, use that. But also if you want to be, if you want your to be sustainable or if you want them to be adapted, 
bring everything that you are to the table, but also be aware. Be aware of your environment and think about how you can implement this or how you can share your knowledge in a way that more um, able to be picked up by a Japanese company, you know? And one way to do that is rather than for you to, you know, go into your own office and then build this perfect presentation and then when you're done, present it, you'll often get a no. Try to get stakeholder input or try to get stakeholder in involvement and engagement as early as possible in your in the creation process. And I think that that way you'll be able to see more of your ideas come to life. Interesting. So that's good for me too, from a personal perspective. Um, this seems like some sort of uh, art of war book uh, uh, teaching, <laughs> like <laughs> avoid avoid the fight, you know, get get your enemies, be your allies before the fight, something like that. Anyway, I really like it. And um, so, so yeah, uh, be an ally of your leadership. Yes. Uh, so they can be more confident. Mm -hmm. Show up as who I am before than being a foreigner. I think this is great mm -hmm. because sometimes we foreigners uh, used to take the role of a foreigner, like mm -hmm. a first thing. And and sometimes we, we forget who we are as individuals. We are the yeah. foreigners. We are. That's interesting, right? Uh, especially exactly. in, in Japan, uh, because we're maybe so different or we feel, and, and then like, oh, he's the foreigner or I am the foreigner, but but I'm me too. I'm, I'm not just a foreigner. That's it. It's like, it's like if someone says, if you come with an idea and say, okay, regarding aerospace engineering, here's my idea. You don't have that idea because you're a foreigner. You have that idea because you're an aerospace engineer, Terry. That's, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and, and because of my personal experiences in life, yeah. who knows, my education, my, exactly. my work. Yeah. Yeah. Because and I think if someone just came to me and said, I'm a foreigner, I have an idea. I'll be like, I'm scared. I'm not going to build an aerospace. I'm not going to build an aircraft or whatever they're called just because you said so because you're a foreigner. I'd build it because you're because you're an engineer, however, you know. Yeah. Yeah, although I I have the feeling that in Japan it's kind of easy to to get into this mindset which I believe it's wrong like I am a foreigner rather than I am me. Mm. It seems to me and I'm, I'm, I'm willing to, to listen to what you think about this. The Japanese people are, are very curious, curious people, and that's great. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they give foreigners uh, the benefit of being right just because they're foreigners. Mm -hmm. I don't know if this makes sense. Like, mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. he's a foreigner, he said, we have to do it this way. He's yeah. probably right. I don't know if you've experienced this. I, I have experienced this in the past uh, mm -hmm. in Japan. And... I don't know. Uh, is it is it a lack of confidence from Japanese people, or is it that? I, I, what is it? So when you tell you my my honest opinion, yeah, go ahead. My honest opinion is they're doing it to shut you up. I don't think they're doing it. I don't think they're doing it like not as in you. But I found when when a Japanese person says "ma ma ma ma," okay, let's do it. It's not because they believe in it. It's because they're like just shut up you know, just shut up, we'll just do it. And they tried to shut you up about it. So <laughs> the way that you can move from just being shut up to actually being kind of, you know, involved is that rather than the idea and let's do it, the, the approach would be, I've learned this and this seems like an analogy where this solution that I've seen before might also work. Let's together think about how we could implement this 
uh, in our, you know, unique context. And then that might move from, okay, he's right to let's just do it to, you know, that kind of just shut and just do it to that kind of, you know, sustainable approach. Cause that's what we want to do. We really want to get that people are committed to innovation or to change because we told them, but because they see it because that we leave, they'll stop. We want that people are committed to innovation and change regardless that it becomes a, that it becomes a culture, it becomes a culture. And I think the way to do that is to get people involved because also innovation is like, is like going to the gym. You really have to do it every day. You have to practice it. It's not something you just wake up and, and you know, you can do, it's like driving or walking or whatever it is, you have to practice it. So I think the more opportunities that we as like foreign professionals can provide to our Japanese partners, be it our bosses or our team, the more likely they are to then develop their own innovation muscle, their own change muscle. Um, and, and then we might be able to see that, you know, it moves from, oh, change is this thing that we do or innovation is this thing that we do to innovation is who we are. Wow. I... I was shocked by your answer, but but I think you're right. I think you're right. They might be just trying to shut us up. <laughs> but That's... then go back, go back and and introduce it again. But rather than just introduce it as a finished product, introduce it as the beginning of a conversation rather than the end. This is the this is the mistake many people make. This is my idea. How you know it comes back to that context thing that we were talking about. When we say I have an idea, what does that mean? It usually also means that you can build on top of it, right? In Japanese, yeah. when you say I have an idea, what does it mean? It means this is the idea, we're done. Don't, you know, this is how it should be. And you think, gee, why didn't they, you know, contribute? Or why didn't they add their own thoughts to this idea? Why is this idea literally just copy and paste of what I said, right? It's because you, because they don't understand that an idea is the beginning of a conversation rather than the end. Because in Japan, the idea, that's it. The idea is what you implement. So when you have ideas, introduce it and reframe it to your Japanese team as let's here is a here is the beginning of what I would like this conversation to be here's my suggestion or here's a suggestion or here's what I've seen now let's talk about how this might be relevant for us wow so I think this is really important and I'd like to try with uh, with a dummy example and because I want to make this very clear and even for myself in the future so let's say Let's go back to the car example and let's mm -hmm. say I want to introduce, I don't know, uh, a new sensor to detect mm -hmm. uh, people around. And I have a very clear idea in my mind. I'm a foreigner. And mm -hmm. so, so what I would do before this conversation is go and say, <laughs> well, guys, <laughs> I have this great idea. You should listen to it. Uh, we should install these two, three sensors in the car, and mm -hmm. then it's going to detect people by, I don't know, a, a heating detector or whatever. Uh, so, and then I created a presentation and show mm -hmm. the steps, the plan, more or less, from the cradle to the grave, uh, and show it to them, and that's it. So mm -hmm. instead of doing that, what should I be doing? Well, you can do that, but I don't know if it'll be very effective. Um, <laughs> this, this is what I would do. You see this sensors thing and you're like, that's actually something that we could do at your next team meeting or at your, the, whatever way that you guys collaborate 
or communicate because this is not, this is your whatever I'm saying is that take this with a grain of salt and think about how it would be best applied you know in 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 your team because each each company has their own culture is that I would either talk to my uh talk to my boss individually or I would introduce to my team hey Uh, I've seen, you know, this problem or this opportunity or this challenge that we've been having, I came across this article, this topic or whatever, I saw it here because you got the idea from somewhere else, right? You saw it somewhere or, or, or something. I don't think you just thought it up in, in your head. Right. Um, so then you say, okay, uh, you know, and I saw this idea for census and I thought this could be a really, this, this is an analogy or this could be a really great opportunity for us, Right. And then what you need to do is then introduce the idea as the beginning of a conversation and say, okay, now let's take this and then introduce it. So in design thinking, something that we would do is then enter what we call like a divergent conversation. So divergent conversation means that, you know, we think of ideas, anything goes. And then once we've kind of gone through that divergence phase of understand, you know, of kind of mapping our opportunities, we go through the convergence phase, which is then, you know, making sense of the data. So to make that really simple is that I would go in and say, I've seen these sensors here and here. Would What would be really good is if you could have like a photo or like some kind of like, um, some some kind of material like where it's worked somewhere else even if that's not in a car even if it was in a house but then take it and say okay well I saw this in a house and I think this technology could be really great um you know for our particular you know uh, product or service and then um I would encourage uh input right and a way to do that is that you can ask you know your colleagues to build on your idea So rather than you coming in and saying, don't worry, guys, I've thought of everything, you know, we're fine. You also need to collaborate. You also need to know that your idea might become stronger because, you know, your, your, your team members might see something that you don't see. Right. And so yeah. what we want to do is introduce your idea and then say, okay, everyone, this is kind of like the, the initial the initial idea that I have now let's think about how this might be, you know, useful um, for our particular business case and then, and then go from there and encourage feedback, get people to, you know, write things down. You know, I w I wouldn't necessarily say what you think, like I wouldn't do it in like a, in like an oral way, like just discussion. I would, I would literally, if you're doing it online, I would, you know, open a Google doc and get everyone to write down their, their ideas. Um, and, or if you're doing it face to face, I would give everyone a post-it and a pen and get them to write down their ideas. And I would frame it like this. Okay. I would love you to write down everything that you, or everything that would make this idea better. And then I would want you to write down everything you think is wrong with this idea. Right. Something mm -hmm. like that. And then take their feedback and that's when you then go and do your presentation. But if you do your like perfect presentation without anyone being involved in the process, uh, I think you're going to find yourself pretty alone. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense. I, I, <laughs> now that you've explained it, I, I cannot unsee it. <laughs> um, still, I, I mean, I get a point. So not having a dominant role, Uh, so go to the collaboration mindset versus imposing, which probably pollutes the, the development process because it's only your idea mm -hmm. and, it's, and it's probably not the best uh, because it's only yours. So it, it enriches when you share it with people and, mm -hmm. and you get their feedback. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned 
have everyone to write down what mm-hmm. they think and what's good and bad uh, ideas they have. Uh, so now I, I think about, again, the Japanese culture, Japanese mm-hmm. mindset. Sometimes Japanese people get a little bit shy uh, while mm-hmm. sharing their opinions. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you approach to this, uh, to this aspect of the development process? Yeah, that's absolutely essential. There's the first thing that we need to do is create an environment uh, with, of curiosity to say we're here to hear people's ideas, right? Very clearly state that. Don't assume it, right? We are here, we want to hear everyone's ideas. So make sure that the environment, that kind of like safety, that emotional safety, that psychological safety is there. And then once you've done that, um, never ask for feedback like verbally. Like, hey, everyone, tell me your idea. Give everyone a pen and paper if you're in the same room or get everyone to write write it down. Maybe you're using Mural, maybe you're using a Google Doc, whatever it is, get people to write it down. That's my absolute, I, there's been no better way that I've been able to get feedback in Japan than creating psychological safety, getting people to write it down, and also maybe giving structure to the feedback. So if you say, give me feedback, Sometimes Japanese people are like, oh my gosh, what does that even mean? So feedback in Japan often just means like negative things. It doesn't mean even the good things. Whereas feedback, you know, in, in, when you use it in an English term, is kind of like that 360 idea. So, yeah. gi- so give structure to the feedback. Everyone, tell me what you liked about it and what you didn't like. Or tell me what you, what you think is a, is a challenge or what you would like to see. So give kind of, you know, or like another another analogy that we often use is like the traffic light, but like the, you know, the stop, slow down and then go. Like what what are the red light things? What are the things that you're like, this is not gonna work? What are the what are the like the yellow things that you think, oh no, this is this might slow us down? And what are the green things? What are the green things that you think, yeah, that's a really great idea? So try to give some kind of structure to the feedback because it helps you think, you know, creativity and and you know, and feedback is 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 best um, leveraged uh, when you when you have structure. Yeah, that that sounds basically. I think we're circling back to to the point of providing instructions, um, giving a process of uh, how to improve the company design thinking. So so you tell them how to do it, and then you mm-hmm. just let them do it at their pace, and then you collect. Mm-hmm. I guess you collect at the end. At least at the end, you're going to have to ask them for their feedback, right? So you oh. collect it. Tariq, that you just brought up actually one of the most important points, thank you, which is when you collect the feedback, you only say one thing, which is, arigatou gozaimasu. Even if they say, well, I don't like the fact that this sensor is yellow, right? And you're like, it doesn't have to be yellow. Do not, when you're asking for feedback, say nothing. The only, the, you only act on the feedback when you're iterating, for example, like for a presentation or whatever, in the moment that they give you the feedback, even if it's good, even if it's bad, the only thing you say is nothing more. Okay. Which is super hard. It's super hard because when someone's like, no, but what about this? And you know that you have like the, like a perfect easy answer, you know, you have Mm -hmm. to just go, just hold your breath and don't say anything. Cause why we getting an environment psychological safety where anyone can say what they think so just take the feedback and say thank you because if this person says gee Tariq I don't know why you said the sensors should do that and that and you're like obviously not they shouldn't do that and that right well what we need to take from 
in your presentation or in your idea or however you presented the, 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 the solution, it wasn't clear. So what do you have to do? The next time I have to make sure that it's clearer because feedback. Yeah, plus this avoids uh, instigating fear in the audience. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Maybe next time they wouldn't comment because they're like, oh, yes, I don't know, this, exactly. this guy might just jump on me. Yeah, yeah. Tariq, the one that's always telling us feedback and then tells us no. Yeah, yeah I get it. Yeah, it's, it's like so, it's so logical and easy to understand when you explain it, but, but I'm not, I, I, don't, I think most of people don't get to this conclusion in, in, mm -hmm. during their professional, during their careers. Okay, so arigato gozaimasu. I'm going to start practicing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, create environment of curiosity. I like that. So set an emotional and psychological environment. Mm -hmm. Okay, so um, I think all, all this is great. Um, I would like to know... So, so I, I guess you came up with uh, with all these uh, ideas and methods, and which I think is fantastic. I'm guessing based on your experience, this must have come from somewhere. Mm -hmm. So, how how did you started getting in in touch with the Japanese culture, and how did you why did you come to Japan? How did all this all started? So that that's actually. Um... So in Australia, we learn uh, Asian languages in school, the same way that some people, for like, I think in, in, in learn English or German or French or something, right? Like in, in, in school. In, yeah. in Australia, we, we learn an Asian language. It just so happened that at my school, we learned Japanese. At my brother's school, for example, he learned Indonesian. So, you know, it just kind of depends. Yeah, I know it just kind of depended. It's you amazing. Know. Yeah, if you cut the world, where is Australia? The Asian side, you know, yeah. the Asian side of the world. So we, in, in 99, they, like, they passed a law. It was maybe one of the last intelligent decisions Australia made as a country. <laughs> um, that, that instead of learning like German or Italian or something like that, in school we learned an Asian language. And at my school we taught Japanese. Um, you know, since then, I remember my, my teacher walked in and she started writing on the blackboard. So now you know how old I am because we use blackboards and she wrote on the blackboard, um, you know, and she was writing in kanji, you know, from like right to left. And I remember thinking, that's so cool. You know, I want, I want to do, um, obviously, you know, j just being a cool factor isn't, isn't enough to sustain a career in Japan. Right. Yeah. So that was kind of like the initial um, the, like the initial kick. And then, uh, that kind of after that, you know, I just kind of became, um, you know, just deeply interested and deeply curious, not only about the culture, but about the language. I knew I didn't want to be like a Japanese teacher or something like that. Like that wasn't for me. Um, you know, for me still at the end of the day, the reason why I'm passionate about languages, um, you know, is because it connects me to people. So I thought, what's a great way for me to connect to people? You know, well, business is, is you know, one of those ways. And uh, in my jobs, you know, I saw, you know, I, uh, you know, I also speak German and I would see, um, 
you know, for example, these, these, you know, very large Japanese and German companies collaborating, but for some reason, like it, it wasn't working. And I remember thinking, gee, there's something missing here. Even though, you know, I have three languages, somehow we're not moving in the same direction. And for me, design thinking was then that extra layer of kind of unity or, or, or sense in a way, uh, that then, you know, leveraged my, my languages because language doesn't, don't necessarily get get you on the same page but you know following a process certainly does so having having that that connection between you know language and then also design thinking was was way forward for me well this sounds like uh the perfect success story because it's it, <laughs> hardly hard, hardly <laughs> at least in the sense of like how did you came up with this it's like a natural problem or lack that you've experienced in your life and mm -hmm. somehow you figure out how how to fill the void how to uh fill the gap uh with design thinking and i think it really fits well after everything you've explained uh so so in my mind you wanted to use languages as a tool to mm -hmm. help others um, mm -hmm. but using your core skills which are probably more related to business Mm -hmm. and the business development world. Uh, by the way, I found amazing that Australia is teaching Asian languages. I think it makes sense. I think it makes mm -hmm. a lot of sense, as you said, from a geographical perspective. But mm -hmm. I didn't know this. And for me, Australia has always been, okay, a country in the East, but, in the East, but with a... Culturally West, culturally Yeah, West. totally, totally, totally. Uh, you know, uh, God save the Queen and everything. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't want to go into politics, but but anyway, I'm surprised. I'm surprised in a positive way. I, I really like this. So you've learned Japanese. Since, how old were you when you started learning Japanese? Ten, ten years old. Wow. What, yeah. I, I wish I could have learned Japanese. Ten, since I was, ten years old. Amazing. So 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 what happened then? Okay. So so you started learning Japanese, and then. And, and then I think you've worked in Germany as well. You spent some time in Germany, yeah, right? Yeah, that's right. I was eight years in Germany. That's right. Mm -hmm. uh, eight years? So, yeah, I was in Germany. Wow. Uh -huh. Wow. Yeah. So, um, it, well, the Japanese thing just kind of started and I just, you know, was just deeply, deeply interested in, and deep, deeply curious. And I knew that I wanted it to be a part of my life. Um, but I also knew that, you know, I wanted it to be, yeah, part of my life in a way that, I could work with it and build a career out of it. And as, as I mentioned before, I didn't want to do like the, uh, like a tour guide or like a teacher, like for me, that's just like horrible. It's not, it's not who I am. Like, I, um, yeah. And then, so, you know, I knew that I wanted to work in business, um, but you know, the, the, uh, the bilateral business, uh, scene was not nearly as effective or was not as impactful as, as I thought it was. Um, and then it wasn't until, you know, utilizing design thinking that we were able to, to, to leverage the good things, you know, what are the good things about Japanese culture? What are the good things about, you know, this other culture and then to create, you know, something together. So for me, that was really, that was really the key. Wow. Well, yeah, it makes, it's like all the pieces were just coming together through your life. And, and then I guess at some point you ended up in Japan. How, mm -hmm. how old were you when, when you arrived to Japan for the first time? Um, the first time was a month before my 18th birthday. So I went before I started university. Yeah, before I went, so I went after high school and then before my university. And did you study here? Because I think I've seen yeah. that you studied, right? Kyoto, maybe? Yeah, 
Oh yeah, that's right. So I was uh, in Kagoshima in the, in the in the south, and then after that, um, I studied in in Osaka. Uh, okay. I was at university. Yeah. So I, I've kind of like, and then, you know, I, I um, am, am now in Kanto, so in, in Tokyo, um, which is where it's about class. So I've kind of been able to see the, you know, like all, all different, all different parts of Japan, which has been really exciting because Kagoshima is very different to Osaka and Osaka is very different to uh, to Tokyo. Um, so it's, yeah, it's a real pleasure to see uh, the different faces of Japan. Yeah. There's different cultures and personalities depending on on the region. Um, what would you say as a foreigner, how was the cultural, I think we all have cultural shock when we had come to Japan. It's not necessarily a bad thing, I believe. Uh, it's just a learning experience. Mm. What, what would be for you the most and least gratifying experiences when mm. you came to Japan? Um, when we think about culture shock, for me, culture shock is not simply G they ate a lot of rice or gee, there's a lot of Japanese people here. You know, for me, culture shock is when somebody has lost their significance and they don't know what to do. Right. So they, they, they come to a country and they're like, I don't know where I fit in anymore. You know? So I would encourage you in order to get over, you know, your, your like culture shock, I would encourage people to find ways that can contribute to the culture or to the community, um, you know, and that's, you know, by doing things like making friends or instead of always eating at, you know, for example, Spanish restaurants, if you're from Spain or always eating at Mexican restaurants, if you're from Mexico, go to, you know, some Japanese restaurants and try some Japanese food. So, you know, you can do things like, um, don't have to do very complex things. You can do very simple things, but think about ways that you can then define position or carve out just a little bit of a, of a of a space for you in this new community so for me any any experience that I've had like deeply collaborative so whether it's working with my clients whether it's been you know being invited to you know your friend's family's house for the first time things like that those for me are, are all things that that stand out for me as those as those experiences that I'll that I'll have with me forever that's a great advice another golden statement i got here find ways to contribute in the society mm -hmm. it it might seem obvious i don't know but it's it's not that obvious when when <laughs> you're living the experience so, but i think you're i think you're right i think it's totally right and i think we as foreigners do have to make that effort and you know and, and try to uh as you said contribute in the society mix mix up with uh with the society as much as possible learn the language and so on, so on, so on. Yeah. I yeah. think, you know, the language is certainly one thing, but I would even, you know, if, if you can learn it, like if you can learn Japanese, absolutely do that. However, I found that just feeling a part of a community is even more important. You know, we've, we all know people, you know, I want you to think of, you know, whoever's listening right now, I want you to think of your native language. Have you, do you feel connected with every single person who speaks that language? Well, then no. So it's more that feeling. So as I definitely recommend if you can learn Japanese, go and learn it. But even more so, try to make, try to think how you can, you know, make Japanese, a, you know, a part, or how to make Japan a part of you and you a part of Japan. You know, because you, you're there. You can, you know, contribute to someone. You can, you know, contribute to your and, you know, start small. I think, you know, the biggest one for me is things like food. People who just only eat their, their country's food. 
I think that's, you know, of course, you know, if, if you're from Spain or Mexico, like the food is super delicious. So you're like, why would I eat anything else? You know, I, but at the same time, try to open your mind a little bit um, and then think about, you know, to experience what, what other people are seeing, feeling, eating, um, you know, so that you can also uh, have, have that experience. Yeah, I think that just uh, limiting yourself to your own food and people when you're abroad, it's like killing the whole experience. It's terrible. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's wasting such a great opportunity. Uh, you said another thing that I really like, feeling a part of the community. So f- in, in, this, uh, in this aspect, what is the thing that you have done and feel more proud about in regards of feeling part of the Japanese community? For me, it's my, the relationships that I, that I have any relation. And it's not only like, for example, you know, Japanese people in Japan, but if, for example, with you, Tariq, I would never have met you if we both, you know, hadn't had this Japanese connection. So Japan actually connected us, you know? So I think for, for me, it's, it's the, it's absolutely the relationships of people. And then for example, you know, even now, for example, with the Business Karaoke podcast, to be able to contribute, you know, little pieces of information that maybe people wouldn't really have, for me, is just something super exciting that maybe because of something that I did, maybe somebody's life is a little bit easier. That's for me just what it's all about. Yeah, definitely. So in, in terms of connections and relationships, I, I know you probably spoke Japanese when you came to Japan for the first time, but uh, in your experience dealing with other foreigners, what would you recommend mm-hmm. to a foreigner that is living in Japan and doesn't speak the language, uh, maybe hasn't uh, felt part of the community yet mm-hmm. and maybe not understood the culture 100%. What would you recommend to this person that is willing to, uh, let's say, contribute in the society using your words to do? Mm-hmm. Well, this is when, you know, getting back to our, our point of you don't just have the foreign hat, you also have the you hat, you know what I mean? So think about things that you really enjoy. Maybe you're a photographer, maybe you enjoy cooking. And then you can, you know, utilize the internet and do something as simple as start a meetup, you know, you can say it, which is, for, which is free. So yeah. you can, for example... Um, the other thing is, is uh, you know, and through the and through that way, maybe you can, you know, make friends. You know, so in in that way, you're not only utilizing your own personal experiences, uh, but you're also finding ways to make friends, which I think at the end of the day is uh, is going to make your your entire uh, experience very very different. Yeah, yeah, I actually relate to what you said. I started a few meetups. I think it's a great way to to meet people and mm-hmm. share your uh, your hobbies, yeah. Mm-hmm. Whether it's yeah, cooking or photography or or anything, mm-hmm. yeah. That sounds like a good plan. Um, so, in in this sense, how how do you think um, foreigners, from a more more personal point of view, can um, provide an added value to Japanese to the Japanese culture? I, I think just are. I don't think that there's, that it's about, you know, rather than you going and forcing a culture or you trying to be Japanese, which is, which is the, the, the worst thing, that, the, the second worst thing that you can do is force your culture, right? The, the right. first 
you can do is for you to become another culture, for you to just be 100% Japanese because you're not. So I think just understanding that you being you is enough, um, you know, and then maybe, and then just in, in and contribute and share your ideas and share your experiences uh, in a way that that that's inviting, you know, rather than uh, dominating. You know, say this is what I, this is what I've done. If you know, if you make and that's a really great opportunity for you to then share your food with them and say, you know, uh, come to my house and I, and I can you know cook for you and you know things like that. At the end of the day, people uh, people are people, but also. Understand that the the Japanese culture, people at the beginning of a relationship are much more reserved, and then once you kind of do get into that, uh, once you do become a friend, then you know you're a friend for life, really. Whereas like in Australia, if you don't talk to someone for two weeks, like you may as well be dead. <laughs> This reminds me to what you said before about Japanese companies taking more time to go ahead with a new path, but then mm -hmm. being super solid about it. Mm -hmm. So related exactly. to the culture. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So, so from, uh, yeah, following this you know, personal tone conversation, how does a regular Tokyo day looks like for you? There is no regular Tokyo day, particularly in, in the year that is 2020, right? It's such a <laughs> crazy time for everyone. Um, but it, it does consist, I, I love being outside. I really enjoy being outside. I enjoy walking. So that's, for example, like we're in Minato Mirai, which is just near the water. You know, I, I really enjoy just walking around, spending time outside. And Japan has such beautiful seasons, um, you know, so I, I enjoy to spend as much time as possible outside. Um, but, you know, 90% of my day is like cl client work, maybe maybe one day it's a workshop maybe you know another day it's you know on a call with a with a leader that's you know looking to change and he's not sure how you know and it's kind of my job to help them you know make that jump and you know I I I, I love to I love to cook maybe that's why I've kind of referenced food so many times <laughs> you know in the podcast Um, you know, and then, you know, I've also learned, funnily enough, my, my mom actually doesn't like cooking that much. So I learned cooking from my Japanese host mother. So my kind of go-to recipes actually are Japanese recipes. Nice. <laughs> so I enjoy, I enjoy cooking, you know, things like that, But, you know, kind of living, I, I guess my kind of day-to-day -day is kind of very boring because my, my work, there's so much going on, you know, it yeah. takes so much energy that everything that's not work is like just very boring in a way. <laughs> I see. I see. What's the name of the park? Was, I was going to ask you what's your favorite place in Tokyo, but I think you've mentioned that uh, there is this park. What's the name of the park again? Which one? The one I think you said you go to a park. Oh, uh, so in Minato Mirai? No, I, uh, any uh, kinds of... Yoyogi, Yoyogi is beautiful, but it's quite okay. busy. Anywhere in Aoyama is so nice. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, of all the places in Tokyo, I'm kind of more, I'm more a Aoyama person. I really like Aoyama. Oyama? Okay. Okay. My favorite place is Omotesando. Ah, so that's the area. Yeah. So like Oyama Omotesando is <laughs> like the same area. It's kind of a hipster, modern, maybe it, it, because it reminds me a little bit about the West, like the terraces and you, know, you can eat and drink outside. I know, like sitting outside. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I like that too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Great place. So what, what do you do when you are homesick? Are, are you ever homesick? I guess so. Everybody's a little bit homesick sometimes. Um... I don't know if I would call it like homesick, but there is times obviously that you want to see your family, right? There is times yeah. that you want to see your family. And in those times, you either book a ticket and you go and see them 
or for example, like right now where you can't, you kind of have to take a step back and go, okay, well, this is the, this is the situation that, that we're in. And at the end of the day, you know, you know, having your, you know, your family is, is so important and they're always going to be there for you. But you also have to think about, you know, why you moved in the first place, you moved, you know, to create this new life for yourself. And so it's to find ways to be thankful um, or to be grateful for those decisions for me that kind of get me through those times where you, where you feel like a little bit down, remind yourself why you went in the first place. Otherwise you'll find yourself on the train one day and be like, why do I even live in Japan? Like what the hell, you know what I mean? Like these crazy questions that come to your mind, you know, in order for those questions to kind of like you know, to turn those questions down, just go back to the original um, reason why why you made the decision and understand that everything else that's the challenges is just really just a part of life. Yeah, I would say, uh, absolutely, I agree with that. And uh, uh, you just remind me about like going back to asking the question of why you've, you did this in the first place. And also what are the, the values behind your mm-hmm. actions? Uh, why are you doing this? Uh, maybe it's because of, because of your family or maybe it's because of your career, whatever. Yeah, definitely. Because uh, long, very long times living abroad sometimes might be hard, but having a strong mindset definitely helps a lot. Um, we're going to start wrapping up, but I have a couple of few more questions for you. Um, do you start, do you plan to stay in Japan for a long time? <laughs> just, I'm curious. For me, yes. For me, the answer is yes. Okay. Yeah. I have, no, I have no idea like how long, but I kind of like plan in decades. And for me, yeah, the next decade is definitely Japan. Okay. Tokyo or any, any preferred city? So I, I like Minato Mirai. So Yokohama, Yokohama, okay. that area, that's kind of like for me, because like Tokyo is great, but I, I like things to be a little more quiet where I live, you know? Mm, yeah. Yokohama is an amazing place. Mm-hmm. It's so big as well. Um, okay. So uh, a question I, I want to ask you is how do you envision the future of Japanese companies in general, we're going back a little bit to the uh, design thinking, but also if you want to answer uh, about Japan in general, how do you envision the future mm-hmm. based on your experience? I think there's, you know, that we're looking really at a critical time where the companies that, uh, be, you know, move to almost what I consider more traditional Japanese values, those traditional companies, how they began, you know, becoming learning companies, being able to, you know, change according to the environment, you know, you know, there's been many companies that were even founded after the war, you know, that are now very successful. So any company that's able to take um, a, a change in the environment and then use it to their advantage, you know, will be the one to, you know, reign. And then I think the other companies, if they don't change, they won't have access to the kind of talent because, you know, the younger talent now, you know, they're looking for places where they can speak up. They're not looking to go to a place and simply just be a part of the system. You know, they want, they want, um, to be um, more involved. So I think any company that's able to provide that kind of employee experience uh, will be the companies to survive. And I think the other companies, uh, if they are not able to make those changes, I think, you know, will will then, 
you know, have some pretty serious consequences. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So in, in the podcast bio, uh, the business karaoke, which by all means I recommend to everybody to listen to <laughs> if you're, you. they're interested in the, Thank you. yeah, yeah. I, I didn't know about it before I meeting you, but I, I've just listened to, to, to many of them. And I think it's really amazing. Uh, the, the people you bring in, uh, this multicultural environment that you create, I think it's amazing, especially for, for, for expats or people living abroad. Um, I've read the bio of the podcast mm -hmm. and, and you mentioned there the concept of modern global leader. Mm -hmm. So I, I was really, in, I, um, um, it catched my eye. I was really uh, curious about this. So according mm -hmm. to you, what should be the key skills and characteristics of a global leader in the modern world? Mm -hmm. For me, a modern global leader is someone who cares equally about people as they do about the business. For me, that's that's essential. And then I think these kinds of, you know, and then how do we do that, right? So that's, for example, um, to have characteristics or, you know, to to be someone who who's a learner, you know, to learn things, to understand that maybe the solutions are not going to come directly from our industry. So, for example, for me, you know, uh, we work in... Um, innovation, but lots of, you know, the input that we have um, that, that for which we run our session comes from organizational psychology and comes from Zen arts, you know, so to be able to have like the humility to pick up, um, you know, different inspiration from, from different industries. And I also think to understand that like a modern global leader is certainly someone that, that understands that their, their reach is much more um, broad than, than, than just their, their initial market. So they begin in their community, but they also understand that uh, their business might exist within their community, but the business is certainly there to exist or to also then serve the global market, so the wider community as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's uh, I, I totally share that vision. Uh, yeah. I think it's the way to go. It's the way to go, definitely. Mm -hmm. um, so I have one last question, which mm -hmm. is what book would you recommend to somebody that is willing to learn more about what you do about design thinking and mm -hmm. would you recommend another book that you liked in general not necessarily mm -hmm. related to design thinking mm -hmm. but something that has inspired you or helped you in your life mm -hmm. I think if you want to um, learn more about design thinking, depending on kind of your your position or who you are, I would begin you know with a book maybe on if you're a creative person then you can you know maybe begin with something that's you know, a little more creative or if you're kind of more of a people person, begin with something that focuses a little more on empathy. Um, you know, there's all different kinds of, there, there, there's a lot, there's a lot of books and maybe you don't even have to look at something like that's called design thinking. Maybe just look into something that's more about people, you know, that's more about collaboration, uh, you know, for example, because that, you know, will really help you build your design thinking mindset. Mm -hmm. Um Uh, in terms of like a book that's inspired me just in general, one, one that kind of, you know, stands, stands out there, there, there's many, you know, there's, for example, like anything written by, um, you know, the now, you know, late, uh, Sirkin Robinson is, is always, um, 
you know, outstanding anything by Seth Godin or Daniel Pink for me is always, you know, up at the top of the list. But if I were to give like my one book that kind of really did change my life was a book called uh, Flow. So it's about, you know, yeah. So the book is called Flow, F-L-O-W. Okay. Um, It's by a Hungarian um, psychiatrist. So really it was, it's, it's about how to, yeah, how, how to get into the creative process. So it's super interesting. Also another book that's maybe less of a heavy read because that's more of an academic read is, is a book by uh, Stephen Pressfield as well. So um, it's all about uh, committing to the process. Okay. Committing to the process. I like that. Okay. And from a more personal, spiritual, whatever aspect, Mm -hmm. Is there any other book or movie or anything that you found interesting that you would recommend to your friends? I I see the, the thing the books that I told you are like the books that I love that I love to read. Okay. Um, the books are the other ones that I love to read. Um, but I also you know am am not only just like a like a, a book person. One thing that I would almost recommend you to do that instead of just like read, certainly learn and you know you know consume knowledge and content and become better and all those things. But one thing that I would encourage you, any, anyone to do is to maybe create some more content, you know, cause no, no one has on this planet has existed in, in the form that you exist. So rather than, you know, I think reading books is really a great thing, but also keep in mind how might you be able to, to contribute uh, to, to industry knowledge, I think is as important as consuming industry knowledge itself. Not that everyone has to go in there and write a novel. Maybe you just write a blog post. Maybe you just write a LinkedIn article or something. You know, but think about how you can, how you can push the needle uh, or move the needle a little bit when it comes to your own industry. Okay, that's a great advice. So, um, Brittany, f- thank you very much. Uh, so the way I see it is the way I see you is you're so passionate about what you do. <laughs> For me, it's a great, a great pleasure to listen to people like you uh, and know that passionate, passionate people like you are working on what's important right now. I think it's important to have people very committed and you know very motivated of what you do. You actually have motivated me in in this yeah. new aspect. I'm I'm really and I hope and I'm sure you did with the other people that are listening right now. I just I I just have to say thank you very much for this fantastic experience. I honestly propose to do this again in the future and discuss <laughs> how things have changed, hopefully for good or any other aspects. Before we go, I'd like to read again a few of the, I call them golden statements that you've, mm-hmm. you've said because I found them amazing. So find ways to contribute in the society when talking about foreigners living in a different country. Also find ways to contribute in the industry. You said just something similar right now. Um, Care equally about people and business. Um, How are you committed? Ask yourself, how are you committed? Um, how, How can I be the hero of this story? I think this is an empowering statement for somebody that might be just... Uh, complaining about things. Um, so what can you do about it? How can you be the hero of the story? And the last one is innovation is like going to the team. You have to practice it every day. I love you that. Too. That's right. <laughs> Brittany, is there anything else you would like to say? Closing statement for the audience. 
I would just like to thank everyone for their time. And that if there's one thing that you uh, want to take from this conversation, uh, it's that the that what you contribute to the world is is important and make sure that you bring that to your business relationships just as well as to your personal relationships that's a great advice to finish this conversation Brittany thank you again so much for your time your kindness thanks and all your knowledge thanks for having me thank uh, you this is amazing I wish you the best time and I hope I can see you maybe face to face one day imagine <laughs> in this year post-corona world imagine anything's possible <sighs> All I'd right. love that. Thank you so much we'll for having me. Thank you so much, Brittany. Thank you. Bye. Bye.